welcome to the News Pace podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Vedmore, and I'm here today with Courtney Turner. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> it's really good that we've made the connection. I'm sure that um, uh, people who listen to this podcast who have already like come across your work will have said, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> because you're, <laughs> you're, you're obviously into history in a big way, aren't you? So, mm -hmm. so yeah. first of all, so I don't butcher things, because you've got uh, more than one project going on. What is it that you do? You explain what you're doing at the moment and and who it is you are in short form, and then we'll explore further. All right. Uh, well, how how do I do that in short form? I do kind of a lot of things. So the main one is the Courtney Turner podcast, and that mm -hmm. is spelled like Courtney. Um, yeah, I told my dad. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it when I have to keep checking a name constantly <laughs> to make sure I, 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 I'm so tap. I always mix up E's and A's and I don't do it with your name. So that's all right. There we go. Yeah, I actually told my dad when I was in nursery school that he taught me how to spell my name wrong. And he said, no, you spell it the French way. And I said, but daddy, we're not French. And he said, it's prettier <laughs> that way. So that's the way you spell it. So It is so true. It's prettier that way. So Courtney Turner podcast Turner. yes Courtney Turner podcast so that's the main one I started it in uh 2021 uh like right in the beginning of 2021 and uh the the short version is essentially that I was in Santa Monica California where the measures were very draconian everybody was wearing a face mask mm -hmm. and I'm hearing impaired I actually learned how to speak by reading lips I didn't get hearing oh, wow. aids. I do wear bilateral hearing aids now, but I didn't get them until I was almost six years old. So mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much I still depend on all those nonverbal cues and uh, reading lips for clarity of speech until all the coping mechanisms I spent my life developing were then mm -hmm. stripped from me. Um, yeah. So I found myself just really, really depressed and isolated. I was previously a... Um, I was a CrossFit coach and I was doing, I do, I'm an aerial acrobatic performer. So I was doing aerial acrobatic performances, but I was also uh, speaking with those performances. So my speeches were mostly centered around, I, I don't need to, you know, wax poetic about the value of, you know, physical training. I think we all know about the physiological, the cognitive, even psychological benefits. But what I really talked about was uh, movement as a metaphor for life. So more of a philosophical kind of premise. And I talked about ways that we can use uh, physical training to overcome adversity in other areas of life. And because of my unique birth story, uh, my parents actually sued for my birth. I was considered the wrongful birth case. And uh, oh, they wow. told me. <laughs> how does that, how, how does internalizing that go for you? <laughs> that's a, you know, that's it's a word. It's so interesting. That... I never thought about it really until, like, I, I didn't really think about the impact of that and what that meant. Until I tried out for American Ninja Warrior, and it was the first time I shared my story personal, like publicly on camera. And my trainer said to me, he said, Courtney, do you realize your parents sued for your birth? Yeah. And you know, I, said, I never thought of it that way. And just to be That's fair. That's really good that you did that you didn't think of it that way suggests to me that you had very lovely parents. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, and my parents had always framed it that you know, it was the angle that the lawyers took because they knew I was going to deal with medical mm. 
physiological challenges for the rest of my life. So it was really kind of the way that they, because the, the argument was that the doctor was dyslexic and he read the titer incorrectly, but if he had read it, he read it as 112, had he read it as 121, my parents would have aborted me. So that was the argument. But I, I you know, I never questioned that my parents loved me or that they were sorry mm -hmm. they had me. It was never you know, brought to my attention in that kind of a light. So uh, it was very interesting when he said that to me. And it, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I guess they did. They, they sued for my birth. Um, and it was interestingly enough, it was the same lawyer as the Larry Flint Hustler free speech case. Oh, wow. At the same time. <laughs> so we were clearly not priority for him. But yeah, so now everyone knows how old I am too. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so uh, it was, so when I was training for, uh, American Ninja Warrior. And I had, uh, you know, that was the first time I really publicly uh, shared my story. But it was through that that I actually discovered silks and aerial arts because I have very small hands. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in order to be able to, you know, it's a lot of grip strength. And so in order to compensate for lack of surface area, I needed to build more strength, more grip strength. Oh, I saw that as being a really fun way to do it. So I used to do the performances and I would speak about, you know, movement as a metaphor for life and physiological training and my birth story. Um, you know, I, and the, the cliff notes on the birth story is that I am blind in one eye. I am bilaterally hearing impaired. I was had heart surgery when I was one years old. I was born with hypotonic limbs. So for those who are not familiar with hypotonia, it's the opposite of hypertrophy. So when the bros go to the gym, like try and build muscle, it's the opposite of that. My, the neuromuscular connection was not uh firing and therefore my muscles were not developing so i couldn't mm -hmm. turn over in the crib lift my head mm -hmm. that sort of thing um and uh, asymmetrical bone development fine graphic motor impairment stunted growth there were all these challenges they told my mom whoa the that's like a couple of challenges there. <laughs> yeah. that's amazing so that, told, <laughs> thank you so they told my mom that she could hope is find a nice institution for me to spend my life so really that's what i focused on in my uh, speeches was that, you know, people often think about, you know, movement and training in a very physical capacity or psychologically or even cognitively. There's lots of, uh, you know, uh, research that indicates that it is uh, mitigates cognitive decline. But people don't typically, I think with the exception of maybe Bruce Lee, they don't typically think of it philosophically. And for me, it really was such a teacher for because I I mean none of us face none of us uh, avert adverse in life but I was certainly faced with uh, a large uh, a quantity of it you know from very early on and so I recognized how that training would teach me I can do hard things and I can overcome challenges and so mm -hmm. that's what I would do so all this to say that all of my events got shut down uh, I got fired from both of the gyms I was working at. Uh, I can't prove it, but I'm 99.999 repeating uh, <laughs> percent sure that it was due to politics. And uh, so I was fired from both my gyms and all of the speaking and performing uh, events that I had were canceled in 2020. Wow. And I found myself very depressed, very lonely, isolated. I couldn't communicate with people because everybody's wearing a mask. And a bunch of people, I started speaking out on social media. So I remember the first day of uh, the lockdowns, I actually thought, oh, this is a great time to write. And so many people had said I should write my 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 story, you know, and I should write it all mm -hmm. out. And 
So I sat down with the intention to write. And at the end of 10 hours, I found a beautiful white screen staring back at me. And I realized this is not going so well. <laughs> so I, uh, I know enough about the creative process. I was like, I can't force this. I'm too anxious. I'm too depressed. I'm going to take a little breather. Mm. I ordered 11 books that night. I was like, you know, I don't have time to write, but I have time to read. So and I never get time to read. So I'm going to take a little time to read. So I, I started reading and then I found myself wanting to talk to people about all these things that I read. And after chewing my mom's ear off daily, and she was very polite, but, you know, she... I, I, I couldn't spend the rest of my life, you know, chewing my mom's ear off. So I <laughs> I started posting on social media and most of it was really just going back to my roots of philosophy, psychology, stuff that I really hadn't had the time to dive into because I, uh, I was working, you know, and I just really didn't have that kind of time. And so I started diving into that and I started sharing some of that, as well as some articles, journal that I was reading in respect to what was going on with the quote unquote virus that, you know, they were fear mongering us with. And what I found was I was getting so much pushback and things that I never expected to be contentious. Uh, people really argued with me about, <laughs> and I found it so bizarre. I was like, yeah, uh, COVID was crazy. Eh? It was really crazy. Wild really arguments uh, full of fallacies, but people are holding on to them and, and closing their eyes, closing their eyes. And it was so strange to me. I mean, it was really just things that I thought were just common sense or things that I thought were just not like, you know, that wouldn't trigger people. I mean, a lot of the philosophy and psychology stuff I posted, I did not expect people to have such a strong reaction to. But what I realized is that your worldview kind of seeps through everything you do. And I think that's what people were resisting. You know, it was, okay, this is a, you know, a divergent thinker. This is someone who is not towing the mainstream narrative. And even in fields that I didn't expect to be uh, contentious or, you know, oppositional, that was the stance people were taking with me. All this to not very, uh, you know, very long story, not so short, um, but <laughs> all this to say that people had started suggesting that I start a podcast. And the I had no idea what podcast was initially. <laughs> And I, I know it's very embarrassing to say somebody actually, and this is how <laughs> embarrassing it was because somebody suggested when they heard of my birth story, they were like, you need to be on Rogan. And my response was, what's a Rogan? Why do I need to be on it? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have since learned who Joe Rogan is and understand why why they thought that um, and why he's seminal to pod the podcasting world. But I didn't know at the time. So I started listening to podcasts and diving down you know, the rabbit hole, mostly of like the intellectual dark web. I had been reading. Oh, that's a really oh, yeah. interesting. Now we could talk about that for a bit because I went really deep and dark into that. Yeah, go on. Anyway. And dark, I imagine, right? I jo Jordan that. Jordan Peterson follows me. Does he? You what? told me that. I'm what so. What the fuck? I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. It scares me. It scares me. It scared you. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm like so... I got a mark and let us mark his door. Ha! We will return for this one. <laughs> it's something along those lines. <laughs> I'm so curious about that. Yeah, so I started, yeah. it was Roger Scruton who turned me on to, who even made me aware of Jordan Peterson. So I was reading Roger Scruton. And for those who are not familiar with Roger Scruton's work, he's a philosopher, a British philosopher. Uh, he's most known for his work on conservatism. And that was what I started by reading. 
because I was really just fascinated by this political polarization that had occurred. And it's certainly not new, but it was so extreme during COVID. I mean, you know, it was like you held an American flag and people, I, you know, I live in the States and you would think that that should, shouldn't be polarizing, but suddenly yeah, people yeah. thought he was like alt-right, like crazy fanatic. There's this, feel, there's this obvious feeling that there's a loss of liberty happening in every single part of our life and that we go to libertarian circles to try and get the answers for that loss of liberty. That's totally. That's another conversation I'd like to have because I think yeah, that's yeah. being really attacked right now. So I, yeah, so it was just really fascinating to me. So I was reading Scruton and Scruton is a really fun philosopher because he doesn't just write like on conservatism or political theory or political philosophy. He writes about like wine and beauty and, you know, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so, yeah. so I was just diving down, consuming whatever I could because I was bored and it was fun and stimulating. And that's where I found Jordan Peterson. I became, you know, uh admittedly a big fan i mean i went like uh, like like i i how, how many times did you watch a bible lecture i i i, I think I, I i did the whole series like three times with a couple of them extras and all of you know just they're so they're in, it's almost indulgent like it is they, yeah I, I mean, I read all of his books. I read Maps of Meaning. I watched the whole lecture series on Maps of mm -hmm. Meaning, the personality course twice, the one that he did in, I think, 2014, and then again, 2016, I think. Um, yeah, so I really dove down that rabbit hole. And uh, all this to say that I would the idea of starting a podcast terrified me, but then it dawned on me. I had a, an epiphany. I was like, I could have naked fake conversations, and that would be you know, it mm -hmm. might save my life. Uh, not to be morbid about it, but I really felt that way. I mean, I remember having a conversation with my mom. She's kind of like, I don't know how you're going to like parlay this into any kind of business or anything. And I said, I really have no idea, but right now it might just save my life. So yeah, I think yeah. I'm just going to move forward. And that was really how I saw it, even if it was on a Zoom interface or whatever kind of digital interface, at least I could see people's faces. And I, mm -hmm. you know, at the time I was going down the block daily to this liquor store because this very nice elderly uh, Chinese man would honor my quote unquote mask exemption, let me take off my mask. And he would take his off because I was hearing impaired and have a conversation with me. Oh, really, it's not oh. like it was so profound or, but daily he would spend at least. No, 20 no, 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 no. From, cause from the, it may not be profound at the time, but looking back on something like that, you realize how profound it is because I, I, I seriously, Chile was, was dark on the mask front. And, and I looked around and there was, there was, you know, no, no one there to stand just on morally. If I had to, Go, you know, if I had to go through what you've gone through, then it's even like that's just compounded so so much. I mean, I, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, absolutely. I I know everybody felt it, you know. So I don't mean to make this like you know what was. That's me. why I didn't <laughs> complain through COVID because because uh, I knew that there was people who had it much worse than me, and I was just like, okay, all of these crap things. I was traveling across the world backwards and forwards, and they were making me jump through loads of different hoops to be able to do all of this, and uh, mm -hmm. and and the, the depression of it, and the sadness, and the life was breaking down on all different fronts for everybody. I don't think there's a person I knew who didn't lose a relationship or gain some relationship as well. Yeah, that's you know, true. Yeah, there were a lot of blessings. Absolutely. So I was I mean, I would go for 
Like I would go an hour and a half away just so I could go hike on a mountain without being, you know, screamed at by the police, you know, or potentially arrested for not having a mask so I could have a conversation with a friend. Uh, so it was a very dark time. Like that was when I had started the podcast. And since then, I've, I really have five shows. So I have, I do a show with the, it's called, uh, it, we, we started something called Piracy Media. Piracy Media is very much still in development because we are seeking funds for Piracy Media. Um, and uh, so, but really the intention behind it is to aggregate the very atomized alternative independent mm -hmm. media sphere. And so we do a show there that's called The Dialectical Dissonance. Um, because, you know, I talk a lot about the Hegelian dialectic and, uh, uh, one of the guys who we do the show with is, uh, he's from last American Vagabond, Ryan Christian, and the I other know one, Ryan Christian, you know, yeah. Ryan. Yeah. And then the other one is, uh, Scott Armstrong from, uh, Rebunk News. And of course, mm -hmm. Ryan's always talking about the two party illusion. So it kind of ties in with dialectical dissonance. So, uh, that's, we do that show. Um, and then I started a women's round table group and, of all the shows I do, that's been the hardest to coordinate with any consistency. Uh, it's two of the women have left, so they don't live locally anymore. Uh, one of them was just tied up with other things. And then I've brought different people in uh, periodically. But it's really important to me that that, that one be in person. I think that it's just, I always say it's like a counter to the view. It really has nothing to do with the view. But it's just, I've wanted there to be different voices mm -hmm, from women. Mm -hmm in this space. And I feel like there's really not a lot of women in no, this. Space. No, no. I, I think, I think there's more, I think that it's really hard to explain. I, I think there's um only certain people kind of get either in or allowed into this space. And we on the independent media see ourselves as being um, rightly better than the mainstream media that gives rise to like this ignorant fallacy growing in people's heads of that must mean that I'm a better than everything else and I'm most important and then there's individual actors who are really you know there's there's a lot of self there's a lot of people who are ignoring their similarities to the mainstream media and how they act you know there, there has to be a point where we say okay if we're going to make a better media then we've got to cut certain things out that they do to attack each other uh, or attack okay. us um yeah but i i don't i i think that uh it 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 takes just a, a little bit of dazzle for people in the independent media to be awestruck like with some person who to most wouldn't be a celebrity but because of an issue or a stance yep. uh is becomes a celebrity and then of course that then leads to false heroes and all of the rest of Alter it personalities right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well i see that in the independent uh media I and and i i i don't i i just try and get involved with everybody and hope that i can work it out as i go along um but a structure would be nice if yeah. if it could be worked out and i think i i do you know i i i i worry about those sort of structures just because of the co-opting of those sort of structures oh i i do too totally yeah. that's a because i i think I've, I've told you my theory that there's like a counter intel pro operation uh mockingbird occurring essentially that's and i i i mean i can't prove it but i very much feel it like that's very much okay. I, I, I had i had a conversation with someone just an hour ago 
um, yeah. or, like off the record where they were yeah. mentioning a big name that I keep hearing over and over and I keep talking about over and over who is funding loads of parts of the main, uh, the independent media behind the scenes and it's pretty obvious that there is something going on um, and when you trace it back it all smells of agency in, in my opinion is you know I'd be so, very curious. You don't have to reveal it here, but I'd be curious who it is because I, I very much. Oh, that. I'm just going to say it. And okay. RFK Jr. seems to be uh, funding different media. And it's there was one person who was talking to me. They were saying they want to create this. Um, I won't say who it is, but they they want to create a, a what is basically a blockchain media platform. Um, I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a couple of different variations of this happening. And they said the only person that they could get any funding from would be RFK Juniors or a, a, a fund, whatever fund they use. That's the only one. And it seems they were, they were like, oh, we don't want it at all because we know what it comes with. And I think there's a load of people feeling that there's a co-opting happening. So I, 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 I've been speaking about RFK Junior because I watched him come into the independent media and he affected not only only my my working life but my private life to an extent um uh, and my personal life um so so i i i am very wary of his presence and it, when it comes down to agencies people say like i say use fallacies all the time and it's really easy to say rfk jr um was uh his father and his uncle were killed by the cia so he would never turn to the cia but then there could be another side that says, well, is not exactly why you'd want to bend the knee because you end up being in fear for your life and compromised and they've targeted you anyway. So um, I just see lots of links around him and I keep hearing the same things from people. It's not, that's not the only person I've heard that from. So yeah. I get a feeling that they, and, and I know that there's a network he's created that looks really like um, health, the ch children's health defense and stuff like that you can't argue with it you can't argue with it. it it's right everything that's on it is right everything is right so you you want to support you want to you think but sure. if someone's lingering in the background you always know that the one moment that can be turned against us all you know and that's what i'm really wary of so i'll, I'll yeah. that's, sorry Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. And uh, children's health defense. I mean, yes, it, it's interesting you say like it's right. And, I, you know, there's so much they do that's good. Um, but there's also, you know, like the little because isn't this how, uh, you know, uh, psychological operations and controlled opposition typically works is that it's it's mostly I would even argue. Uh, and I've heard this from people in the military who do psychological operations or who did psychological operation uh, warfare. And they would tell me that it's 90% truth, 10% lie. And I would even argue, and I've, I've, I've pressed them further on this, what they've told me about that 10% lie is oftentimes it's not even really a lie. It's like an omission. It's a, it's a context, you know, it's a blurring of context or taking things out of context or situational, or it's, uh, you know, but it's not necessarily even fully a lie. It's really, but it's enough to steer you astray. And that's why it's so effective. I always use the ice cream cone analogy. Um, so I say like, if there's there's the ice cream cone. That's you. It's yummy. You want to eat it. It's but that's the hook gripping lie. So it's something that yeah. hooks you in. It's very enticing, but it's not. It's not factual. It's not true, or it's not uh, contextually true. You know, it's not the the true the real line. 
And, and if you attack it, if you attack well, it, you look awful. Totally. But it's the math line action. And then what they do is they put the sprinkles on it and the sprinkles are the truth. And so it's got all these sprinkles all throughout. And so you mm. keep, keep licking the cone. You're like, oh, well, I love sprinkles. Another <laughs> true. Yeah, it's more. It's yeah. true. It's true. And before you know it, you've eaten this hook, hook gripping lie. And I, I think that's kind of how it typically works. Um, but yeah, it's something I'm very much seeing. And I I think they're trying to do, part of what they're doing in the alternative media space is they're using these little uh, cognitive infiltration in order to splinter. So now you get all these different factions. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, the co-opting, right? The larger that some of these factions grow, the more powerful they are, the more money that's there. You know, there's I think there's a lot of genuine good people who really are just seeking truth and then want to share what they've learned and, you know, uh, hopefully help all of us evolve and weed through this this mess, essentially. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, there's also the reality of just, uh, you know, as you put it, situational pressures, you know, people have they, they have their lives to lead. They have mouths to feed. There's just mm -hmm. that, that's just part of life. And so. And then there are really the so of course they there's pressure put on them. Well, if they're if they can make a living and they can, but then there's also just really the grifters. And mm -hmm. I see a lot of this. There's and my issue with those people and the grifters come in two forms. You know, some of them really are just looking for the money. Some of them really are looking for validation and fame. And sometimes it goes mm -hmm. hand in hand. But I, and really, it's the narcissists who you know it's like they just want to be pat on the back and they want all the attention and. That's not to be un undermined or ignored because that can very easily be manipulated. And I, my issue with those people is, you know, it's not that I wish any ill on them. It's just that they take, you know, let them do what they do. But it's that they take a lot of the trust and money out of the space. Mm -hmm. And then for the people who are really trying to do good and, you know, it, it it takes a lot of resources to, to continue mm -hmm. to move forward, right? So for those people who are genuinely trying to do good and then they try and, uh, you know, build something, there's a lot of trust and money that's been taken out of the space for them. So that's my main issue with it. Um, but yeah, I'm seeing it. I, I And it's it's just it's hard to ignore when, especially yeah. when you move around and you've traveled as much as we have, going to all of these different conferences and events and you just... Kind of, and because I'm not part of like any big entity, I kind of sit back and I watch. And I, you I have got to be, or I, I mean, there's so many things when you when you talk about stuff. There's so many things we have in common on another level. I, I, I can kind of understand the type of person you are because I feel that like I'm roughly the same type of person. Right. I'm really <laughs> interested. I'm really just like I'm outside the group. Um, yeah. I, 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 I didn't have a, 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 an array of health problems but I kind of did I had Graves disease and it was a thyroid disease oh, yeah. and it didn't get diagnosed till I was 27 so I got down to eight stone and I was dying out I ended up having radioactive treatment and like have my thyroids chopped out and all and before that they just misdiagnosed me all the time so I that the, the shaking I had started when I was like 12 13 and that just continued through and they just kept telling me it was normal and all of the different things was normal normal and they would have said totally normal till yeah. till death um but i feel that we, we normal have the same... death, right yeah 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 well i i feel I, I feel that we have the same type of like read of people 
I think I think that by what you describe when you sit back and you watch people, that's massively important. And people who are the the, the true grifters, when they don't know they're being observed, give all of their game away because the grift is really easy to see. You know, is really easy. I, so I'm I'm like I I'm really interested to <laughs> to talk more on that. But I'm not sure because I I've had a, a a day yesterday arguing with Kirby Summers who unblocks me every now and again and shouts at me about something because I am um, I wrote an article about her a few years ago where oh. I showed she wasn't who she said she was and there was lots of lies and she wasn't a sex slave she she actually wrote a long blog about how she was a mistress and she did it for the money and she liked all the dresses and all of this and so so she made a lot of money off the Epstein case and selling this story that she was like them and then and then profited off that and then when I exposed it she wasn't very happy with me of course and we have a backwards and forwards every now and again but um i i i find that there has to be a reckoning at some point on the independent media do, uh, w what do you think that looks like <laughs> that that's a really interesting question what does it look like i i've been less focused on like a, a reckoning so to speak i've been more focused on trying to elevate the good authentic people mm. that i see uh you know like the people who I'm certainly no arbiter of, you know, of truth. And I, I can only see what I can see and, you know, trust what I can trust. But I, the, those that I feel are doing genuine, authentic, good work, I, I want us to collaborate. I want us to elevate each other. That doesn't necessarily mean we always have to work together. I mean, we can, we can collaborate, but it's also just about, you know, supporting each other uh, because that that is so much of how this works. Nobody knows anything until they're they're shown it you know so until yeah, yeah, yeah. they're pointed uh you know I, it's like I, I don't know how to make this concrete it's just like i wouldn't know of somebody's work until there was a way for me to see them and especially if they're mm -hmm. being censored or suppressed or just you know they're kind of in the void and in the vortex and you don't have a way of accessing it so i i i focus more on that that to me is i want the good uh the people doing good work to be amplified and, you know, independently, um, that's that's really what I've been focusing on and just trying to shine light mm -hmm. and keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm a little I, I don't know if naive is the right word, but I just I, I genuinely enjoy digging into information and I'm a very curious person. I, I, no, I can tell I was one of my next questions is going to be like, you know, when when did you start like learning about things like Operation Mockingbird and being like interested in those sort of things? Because that's a that's like you know it's it's not traditional type of it, what we do is very traditional. It's you have to have, have something have had to make you want to go over there, you know? Right. Um. Well, I, I will say that the CIA has always fascinated me, and it is in part because they tried to recruit me when I was seven years old. And ah, how old? <laughs> seven. <laughs> Oh wow, <laughs> that's serious <laughs> shit, man. These guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the narrative has changed as I brought it up in my mom. So I remember it really well. I actually, you know, I remember the whole experience. I was, I was in second grade, and uh, they came in. They they told me that. Well, they told all of us. They told the class that the police were there. That's what they said. Mm -hmm. They called them the police, and <laughs> they said they're just going to do a skit for you. And uh, I. Thought that was a little interesting, but <laughs> I grew up where my mom would always tell me the police are your friends. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This was, you know, the kind of the 
the line that I guess they told children at the time. I, I'm not so sure I would share that same narrative with my children, but uh, that that was always what I was taught. Like you wave to the police, and you know they're your friends; they're there to protect you. And 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 certainly, this is not to admonish. You know, I think there are a lot of wonderful. police who you know people who there's go into a couple i i do police auditing as well so i'll say there's a couple there's a well couple. i this is what i my experience of it and this is not to make a broad stroke statement because there's always exceptions there's always outliers in every case however i would say that for the most part as a general rule what i've experienced is in rural areas police tend to really be you know good uh honest people who want to protect their communities the communities they live in and it's usually communities they've grown up this in is a, this is interesting because this is going to be the opposite in france as it is in france because in france the, the the police that are in the countryside are the most corrupt they're just all doing everything naughty they're just running the places all gangster land and then in the cities are quite no they're still assholes but they're just not as bad as they are in the uh, country but anyway sorry go on Uh, no, that's really fascinating. But in the United States, my experience has been, in, you know, I've traveled, I've traveled Europe quite a bit, but not enough to have that experience, um, not enough to know. But in the United States, my experience has been that the city police typically don't live in the cities that they, which I think is actually supposed to be illegal. They're supposed to live in the communities that they defend, but somehow Yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem to always be the case. And they, so they don't have the same kind of allegiance, the same feeling of, and they often didn't grow up in the city that they're, you know, working in. And it just seems to be much more rife with corruption. That's been my experience. But, uh, but anyhow, I grew up, you know, naively thinking that they're my besties. They're there to protect me. And, uh, So they're doing the skit and I would watch the skit and I, you know, I, I was very uh, artistic always. And, you know, I, I had actually wanted to be on Broadway. So I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this play that they're going to put on for us. And this will be so fun. And it the whole experience was odd to me just because of we weren't really sitting and we were in this, like everybody was kind of scattered. You know, it wasn't set up like a theater, you know, it wasn't. Okay, the seats are here, and this is the stage. You were set up by the CIA. <laughs> It's all over the place. It was all over the place. Yeah. And so I, after this, they brought each student to the principal's office, and you were supposed to recount what you saw individually. And the narrative I then heard oh, was, I you know, see. that my mom had always told me uh, that I wasn't eligible because of my disabilities. You know, I'm hearing and visually impaired, and... So I always used to make the joke that my disability spared my soul. Um, but <laughs> apparently it's not really what happened. Apparently, as I it was in recent years that my mom shared this, you know, what actually happened. And apparently they called and it was interesting just to hear the first time my mom shared it, just knowing the dynamic between my parents, because my mom said typically when it was school matters, you know, because of my challenges like oftentimes the school did call so it was usually like okay you go handle this you know and she said this time my dad stayed and like watched over her and they they called and apparently said you know hi uh you know we your daughter has an eidetic memory we would like to talk to you about recruiting her and uh she she i guess i think she was kind of like confused at first and, <laughs> and uh, She said, I, I don't think she's eligible. You know, she's visually and hearing impaired. And, and they said, okay, that's, you know, that's not a problem. We're, we're very interested. And 
she said they really tried to flatter her. Like they kept telling her this very unusual. We don't recruit children, which is obviously not true. I mean, we just look at the declassified documents and, you know, uh, all the MKUltra experiments, Project Monarch. I mean, we know they recruit children. The The remote viewing experiments they did actually a large part was uh, primarily focused on children. Um, so it, we know it's not true, but that's what they told her. And uh so they kept persisting and tell, trying to flatter her, tell her it was a huge compliment. But she said the big thing that got her was that they would need to take me away periodically for some time. And mm -hmm. she was like, oh, no, no, we're not doing this. And she said that they, she pretty much had to hang up on them. But what was interesting wow. is that they called for about nine months until they finally stopped persisting. That um, is unbelievable. Oh, we're just... Take her away every now and again. You know, <laughs> we're just the CIA. You can trust us. We're not going to do anything wrong. Wow. Well, and my parents, I think at the time, you know, really thought CIA is there to protect us. And, uh, you know, they had a very positive kind of so, impression. So you but... said, how, how did you say it? Because I've heard it before, but I did a, a something memory. You have a something memory. Eidetic memory. Eidetic. So... Eidetic. So it's similar to like a photographic. It's a, you know, like a visual kind of imprint. Is uh, it memory. one that, that's developed because of, of the necessity? I wonder that. Like, that's what I always assumed. I don't know, though. It, apparently 2% of all children have it, and it's not present in adults. And it's slightly different than a photographic memory. Um, but it's it's very similar. Uh, however, they say that it the adults don't have it because it would stunt their uh, emotional and psychological development because mm. uh, it would be too hard to process everything. So it's typically not retained. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things. I don't know if it was like a necessity because of my uh, sensorial challenges. And so I developed that as a my dad has a really good memory. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I've also got sensorial challenges, but I, it's a different type of sensor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I did a little yeah. bit of research into it because I thought it was interesting. Um, but yeah, that was most of what I found is that it, it seems to be present in 2% of children uh, under so, the age. So, of at the some top. point, it went away. Did you, yeah, did, I don't you have did, did, did you feel it? Did you feel it? Did you feel it go? I did. I did feel really? it. Really? Oh my God. That's yes, such a good question. Then. <laughs> I used to, I, I was never like a very studious person. I was one of those people who was like, if I'm interested in something, I will dive in, but I do not like being told what to do, what to study, mm -hmm. what to, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a very, yeah. I'm, I'm with, totally you. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was never good that way, but if I looked at something, I was pretty sure I could remember it. So when I would be in school, if I would like take a test, for instance, I would go, I would close my eyes and I would picture either, you know, what they wrote on the board or, you know, the page on, I could remember the page, I could see the page and I would see the page number and, you know, I would go through it that way to try and answer the question. Uh, but I did notice as I got older, particularly, I think it stayed with me for the most part, but I would say like high school, college, it started to dissipate. I think it stayed with me longer. They say it's, you know, age of 12. Mm. Usually. And I guess around 12 was kind of when it was starting to fade. I didn't have that. Kind of, I still, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I'm told often that I still have a really good memory, um, mm -hmm. but I definitely don't have like an eidetic 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know what a good memory is. I, I Sometimes I just remember stuff because it's passion, isn't it? It's more passion that makes okay, me passion. remember. And there's a lot of studies that have been done on that. Like, you know, when there's oh, really? a heightened, yes, heightened emotionality, uh, a heightened sense of passion or emotional experience will uh, strengthen a memory recall. So, so I, I've had a, a a sense that the reason why I like to go back in history so much is because mm -hmm. I grew up in a 17th century reenactment society, reenacting the Civil War every weekend, and I was always dressed up in the 17th century, um, and with swords and pikes and cannons and muskets and stuff. So, yeah. so I had. Yeah, it was eight thousand people as well, so it's not like it's 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 a few people on a field. And then you right. do battles for charity. Um, I was in the biggest one in the UK, which is a sealed knot, and um, it, it it's basically my my dad had a regiment that was like two hundred and fifty people, and we'd every weekend we travel, and it's a big party on a campsite, and every Saturday and Sunday there's a big battle in front of a load of spectators, and all the money goes to charity. So it kind of like works in a nice loop. yeah it's awesome yeah. it's just a festival with like yeah. closed off campsite you see your friends all the time you got a big beer tent there there's got like capacity for a couple of thousand and bands playing every night it's it's a it's a it's a really good way to grow, grow up you grow up in the 17th century but with music and good food and and like, the rest of it like it's a bit strange awesome. or, yeah yeah but but i wonder if that's the reason why i get so yeah passionate about history when i'm going back through history i can connect with it really easily you know i can yeah because you had enacted it i yeah. i would imagine so i don't know for me i mean i i woke up really late 2020 was when i woke up i was not somebody who was like you know like my there's, there's stages to waking up though isn't there there's there are stages. Very, well absolutely so this is really interesting because I don't think I would have woken up in 2020 if I hadn't had so many seeds planted earlier. Mm. So I think that for me, there were just personal reasons why I, I had too much cognitive dissonance around looking at certain subjects and looking at certain uh, issues that were presented mm -hmm. to me. And for me, I, I think a large part of it was that I didn't know at the time. I mean, I thought my dad was like, was a conservative that's kind of the the narrative that i was uh bought into but in hindsight my dad was a hardcore neocon and i i really oh, didn't know really? i don't know that yeah i didn't know that at the time i don't know that i knew even what that meant um mm -hmm. but he really he was he was a hardcore uh, neocon and it's really interesting because around like 2016 my mom had said something like you know you're actually much more conservative than your father and I don't think she knew either. Like, I don't think she knew mm -hmm. the, the term neocon or maybe she did. I, But I, I don't think it was that connection that made her say that. Um, but in hindsight, I realized, oh, it's true because he really was a neocon. Um, and, you know, at the time, I really was more of a quote unquote conservative. I don't know that that's did how Did you I'd... know much about his, like, did you see much about his politics growing up then? Did you? I yes, mean... I, I did. So I started a board for school choice when I was in sixth grade. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I did. Were you working for the CIA? Sounds like a glorious kind of project. That's what it is. I, it totally is. I realized how duped <laughs> I was. Now I'm like, that was such like a false carrot that was dangled for the conservative. Uh, you know, it, it's it's totally a uh, a 
it, it's it's totally a lie because it's deceptive rather i should say it's just people they think it's couched in because they like the words choice and you're going to have freedom but really you don't have freedom because they're just putting it under another umbrella as a way to entice you by you know putting financial strings over you and now what they're doing with school choice is just really atrocious because they're they're trying to put it under the umbrella of private school So can, now can, can you explain is, uh, for the people in Britain, can you explain school choice? Because because yeah. I, I, there's a lot I can say about a certain period of this I've been investigating recently. Um, but but mm -hmm. go on, go on. Yeah. So school choice is this idea. So I'll just give you the context of when I was growing up. I went to I grew up in a town called Anglewood Cliffs. Now, Anglewood Cliffs didn't have a high school like it didn't have a public high school, rather. It, there was Anglewood, which was a neighboring town. A and high school they, desert. <laughs> yes, it was a high school desert. So Anglewood had a high school. At, but Anglewood was, it, it was very cliche. It was one of those towns that had railroad tracks, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was the, the good and, you know, not so safe side of the tracks. And yeah, yeah. the school, the high school was situated in the less, you know, less safe, less uh, less affluent area of mm -hmm. town. And it was literally dangerous for whites. I mean, there's just no other way to really word it. Um, but it was not really safe for anyone. It, you had to go through metal detectors to get to this, you know, get into school every morning. And it was not a great education. You know, it was wow. very low. It's a, right. It would be bloody scary. I saw it. I saw it on movies when I was young. <laughs> the, like it, I, I couldn't imagine as a British person, like looking at American, some American schools back during that period is just so detached from reality. It looks like a dystopian environment that we would never accept, you know? Right. Yeah. And we did. And so I had, there were other neighboring towns where like my friends from nursery school went and my friends from you know, dance and gymnastics went and they were just as close. I mean, in terms of mileage and distance and time to get there. So it's like, this doesn't make sense to me. Why can't I choose one of these other public mm. schools? Why do I have to go to that school? Mm. And so I created this board for school choice. Now, the premise behind school choice at the time was that you would be given a voucher and then your parents could choose uh, which school, neighboring school, they would want you to go to. So, you know, for instance, uh, just uh, people in uh, Britain might not be familiar with this, but people here might hear that the term uh, Tenafly was a neighboring town. I grew up right outside New York City. So it was very close to the George Washington Bridge. Fort Lee is right over the George Washington Bridge. You know, then there's Alpine, Tenafly. They're all kind of right around each other. And the Tenafly was a great school, very high ranking in terms of, you know, quote unquote, test scores and that sort of thing. And so I asked, why couldn't I just go to Tenafly? And of course, I was denied. So I started this board for school choice. But this is why I want to impress upon people that it's it's very deceptive because they use the word choice. A lot of uh, people who might be on the political right, if you will, uh, and I, I caveat that just because I think that's a false dialectic as well. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes it's just the Ouroboros really being fed to us. So, um, but 
for for the purposes of this conversation, the people who identify as being on the political right, oftentimes they like hearing these words. We have freedom of choice. We can choose which schools and we can take ownership of the education of our children. These, these are all lines that sound wonderful. And so they're selling it to uh, particularly, they're really, you know, there's a mass line narrative targeting the, the political right to have free, you know, to have school choice. However, what it really is doing, and a lot of this is coming through UNESCO, it's being com coming through UNESCO to uh, through the federal and state apparatus. And what they're really doing is they're putting school choices under, they're expanding the umbrella to private school as well. Mm. And What's happening now with private school is they're classifying homeschool. They're offering, and in I can only speak to Tennessee, I believe it was, a, but they're doing this in many states in the United States, um, is that they're offering, I think it was $8,000 per child. Don't quote me on that. I, I might have gotten that number wrong, but I think it was $8,000 per child, which for some families is a lot of money. Now that's it. And the you know, the premise behind it is that we're, we're giving you this money for for books and for supplies and for, you know, things that the, the student might need so that you can homeschool your child. But what happens now is you're under these this umbrella of private schools through the, the school choice. And now they have power over you because now they can mandate that you do things like wellness checks that may follow the child for the rest of their life. They can require that they have certain injections because you're they're giving you money. Basically, they have leverage over you because you've taken their money. And so this narrative of school choice is just, it sounds like a great, it sounds much, it sounds too good to be true. And it really, it is. It's just not what it, it's being sold as. It, you don't really have the same freedom that they would like you yeah. to believe. Yeah. The strings I, I, are being pulled. So yeah, yeah, I, but, but that that's all that's always been that's always been the same in that 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 sense that I've well always I go back to uh what what my experience of researching American school systems and how this sort of stuff can be like a, a part of a dynamic. I look mm -hmm. at 1970, 1971, and mm -hmm. I, when I was studying Stan Pottinger and all of his behavior around the place, while well, he was first taken up in the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, parts of civil head of civil rights, and right. it, he was dealing with the desegregation. And then it became, uh, during that period, there was actually a rise in segregation in schools rather than, uh, because they, they were, you know, and there was a lot, of course, riots angry people because people suddenly had a reason a societal like factor that said we need to now choose where we we go we want to go out and they weren't being allowed but people were being bussed for miles and miles to schools all around the place and it just seemed like chaos galore i mean really reading about that period and what they were doing it didn't make any sense why they were doing it except to cause the chaos why while um to start you know to, to take away from all of the other things that were going on at that time which is like vietnam war and and oh, yeah. and uh, i mean everything was an intelligence operation back then anyway during that period it's just everything's infiltrated and it's just everything's going about to go crazy because they're all you know everybody's spying on each other and 
and until Watergate, there's not like that, that breakdown of that, you know, there's a focus, the light on them. And then everybody's like out uh, trying not to look like they were doing anything wrong, but everybody was doing stuff wrong for ages. So yeah, I went through the, 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 I didn't understand. I don't understand the American system. So I don't understand why you wouldn't have, but then I think it's probably this roughly the same now in the UK that, and it was when I, when I was when I was young, I went to a school and we were in a catchment area. So mm-hmm. I think you you applied for multiple schools and they right. sent you to the one that was that was right for the catchment area. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and but I, I had a choice between uh, two schools, I think, or three schools, and. Um, I would have loved to choose. I would have loved to chosen the one that was down the road, down the end of my bloody road. But th- this is literally this was the um the line from I think it was from my father. No, there's too many boat people in that school, <laughs> and you'll be attacked by knives. Boat people, which is what they were calling um banana boat. That's what they would say. So it's like Somalis and people who would come over in 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 uh, abundance when uh in the early nineties um. We're, we're called boat people and stuff um so right and, and so i i ended up not going to the the school at the end of the road where most of my friends went i i, I had to go like three miles up the road just because of of some other reason anyway so it's like often kids don't get to choose their school on top of it the american system makes it almost impossible that you have to be forced into this school over here which is really awful and yeah i mean so which area are you talking you're talking is this in la no this is right outside new york city i grew up in oh, new jersey so right yeah, yeah, bridge yeah um right. i i that's one of the dives i've done i've, I've I done thought you of- said i thought you said englewood and i suppose there's multiple Inglewoods. there's an englewood with an that's, Crim- that's like crimshaw boulevard isn't it the other one yeah it's <laughs> and a- that's like pretty i mean now that's been uh, i i love rap music growing up so <laughs> oh yeah there's a lot of rap music from yeah, yeah, yeah. That well i lived in I, LA for a long time so yeah but oh, no right. i grew up in on the east coast so hey, but yeah, hey aesop I- rock Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> I love I love rock, all rock music, but yeah. So <laughs> I uh but yeah, I, I I've done a lot of research on the education system and that's a it's model art the United States education system is modeled after the three-tier Prussian model of education, mm-hmm. uh, which was born after the Battle of Jena, which was during the Napoleonic Wars. It was in 1807. That was, was the one when Napoleon got, got his, like, they had to retreat and everything, isn't it, in Palestine? Exactly. They lost yeah. the Battle of Jena. And 1799. They I'm going to say 1799. No, it was a, oh. 1807. Oh, eight, oh, right. Okay, much later. Anyway, okay. It, yeah, cl- uh, yeah, not that far, but yeah, 1807. <laughs> So they like uh, they lost the battle, but they realized they lost the battle because the the soldiers were dissonant. They they had rebelled, mm-hmm. and they realized they rebelled because they were critical thinkers. And so they decided that they needed mm-hmm. to establish an education system that bred mind. They literally said mindless obedient soldiers. I mean that would be the translation, mindless wow. obedient soldiers. And so they designed this three tier Prussian model of education and that model of education got exported to the United States. A lot of people point to John Dewey. I go a little further back. I would start with Wilhelm Wundt. 
uh, Wilhelm Wundt was known as the father of psychology. Uh, and he, I, I always point this out, this, it doesn't prove that he was, you know, uh, advancing the uh, Illuminati agenda, but he is a descendant of Raphael. He was known as Raphael in the Illuminati. Uh, so he he does have those connections. And then he was, of course, part of the Leipzig uh, University. And he himself had no formal education, formal training, but he was the really the father of the Ph.D. program. And he uh, he trained uh, who was it like a uh, Pavlov under him, of course, Dewey, Stanley G. Hall. Uh, and of course, William James, who was the first PhD student, and William James is known as the father of American psychology, and really exported uh, that system along with, of course, uh, James, uh, James Dewey, uh, who is uh, uh, very much, uh, sorry, John Dewey, who is very much instrumental in uh, crafting the, the model of the education system that we have in the United States now. And John Dewey uh, was a co-author of the Humanist Manifesto. So uh, what 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 years are this? Is this like mid 1800s? This would be, uh, I think it's around like 1880 was Wilhelm Yeah, Bohm. okay. Okay, 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 that makes Should sense. Because I, 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 I'm not sure if we talked about this before, but I did a load of research about um, how the German model was being idolized by um, Harvard and others during yes. the 1840s and 1850s. And the president of Harvard was just in completely in love. And they were, they, they were writing long, long essays on how they really need just to adopt the Germans. Look, the British and, and the Americans, we, 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 we just don't know it on this front and we should, we should, we should look to them. Um, and it's kind of the lurch towards the world wars. I found, I, I thought I felt like, well, like psychologically, in a sense, very much so, because there is a strong connection between uh, the psychologists, right? These PhD uh, students of Wilhelm Wundt and then the Tavistock Institute. And the Tavistock Institute was originally created around uh, 19. I think they started gathering the, the idea for it around uh, 1911. Uh, 1912 was certainly when they congregated. Uh, oh. It was a, a William um, wow. a Masterman was appointed to helm this. Uh, it was called the British Propaganda Bureau, and it was at the Wellington House. And the the it was called the British Propaganda Bureau because always in the name of quote unquote defense, right? Uh, the Germans had a propaganda bureau. And so they said, "Well, we need to craft a <laughs> propaganda bureau." Yeah, <laughs> one of one of one of the people who worked at the German propaganda bureau, if I if I remember correctly, was Nahum Goldman, one of the founders of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? That's about 1917. No, yeah. no before 1917. Yeah, no, it no, had to be before. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. what year it was in in Germany, but yeah, it was it was definitely before. And so they had this uh, British propaganda bureau at the Wellington House, and it was, of course, you know. The, the typical kind of players were involved in a lot of the funding for it. You know, it was Lord Alfred Milner, uh, uh, Rothmere, mm. Northcliffe. Uh, the the Royal Crown was very involved. Uh, I I, the, I believe the Rockefellers and Rothschilds had uh, you know some involvement as well. And uh, then they the one of the first things they did was they brought over. They had a meeting with twenty five uh, very well known literary. Uh, you know, figures at the time. Uh, so it was people like, of course, H.G. Wells and uh, uh, who else was involved? Uh, Chesterton. 
Um, so some very prominent figures, uh, Rudyard Kip Kipling, who's a huge favorite of mine, if it's yeah, one of yeah, my he's amazing, favorite he's moms, wonderful, yeah, yeah, but amazing. He actually did not make that meeting, but he was definitely he was still part of the whole operation. And what they did was they crafted a, a sixteen hundred pamphlets and books uh, between them to create propaganda to garner uh, acquiescence from the American British populace. So was was Gunga Din just propaganda? You're telling me? Yeah, to to get course, them. Of course, he was engage in uh, World War One on the side yeah. of the British. And yeah, of yeah. course, from there, Go, they start... oh my god, I, I just didn't think I did. I didn't even when when I, I with Gunga Din going out and and giving water to the men on the battlefield who are uh, 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 thirsty and he didn't, and it's only him, only him out there. Everybody mm -hmm. else is dying and deserting them, but he's there, Din Din Gunga Din, giving, giving them the water. I, yeah, I should, I should have seen it really, shouldn't I? <laughs> totally, yeah. Um... So they had a and then they start. They headed up what was called the Creel Commission. So this was George Creel who was appointed to helm this commission, and uh, George Creel appointed uh, Edward Bernays, of course, the double nephew of Sigmund Freud, whose nephew is the founder of uh, today's modern propaganda machine, also known as Netflix. Uh, and he was actually uh, he went to my alma mater. He, he's a graduate from Hamilton College and. Uh, so it was Edward Bernays, along with Walter Whitman, who was a journalist, to mm -hmm. help this Creel Commission. And the, the job of the Creel Commission was to create propaganda for the United States um, to uh, get, you know, to change the sway the populace on the side of engaging in the world on the side of the British. And this was a very tall order because they had to very closely advise and uh you know, guide Woodrow Wilson, who ran on the campaign that he would not engage in war. No, and so had to really shift yeah. the narrative. Which is which is the manipulation that you see, like um, the OSS and like like really harnessing at the end of of World War Two as well, where you, they're they're pushing yeah. towards. And Tapsoff was very instrumental in that as well. Uh, they mm -hmm. were totally engaged in propaganda for they were behind actually. And so was Creel behind that whole what I forgot what the campaign was called, like stop the I, I forgot what it's called, but it's, it's the Uncle Sam, like we want you, mm -hmm. you know, all of the, the pictures that they did for that. Yeah. So and that was very much George Creel, of course, ended up creating stop a the hun. <laughs> stop like, them, hun. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah but he of course then created a fil film commission like he started he went into the film industry uh, of course to create more propaganda um so yeah so they but i i always think that this is so interesting because it was during that time during world war one when they were trying to advise wilson uh that they they weaponized the term isolationist because mm -hmm. i remember when ron paul was running and he was very popular with you know the the political right, you know, he was saying all the things that they that really resonated for them. But the one thing that they were able to uh, weaponize against him was the, his foreign policy. So they would tell him that he, you know, they would say he was a crazy isolationist and we can't have, you know, him running our foreign policy. And I remember even my father, he would tell me that he was like, oh, Ron Paul gets a lot of things right. But, you know, 
he's his foreign policy is just Looney Tunes. I mean, we can't have yeah. that. That's just crazy. <laughs> I got I got <laughs> memories of my parents saying stuff that now I realize is just them repeating what they heard on the news. You know, it's <laughs> just it. It totally. It's and but I thought it was so interesting because I had friends. I remember I, I dated a guy at the time who was like a hardcore Ron Paul fan. And, <laughs> yeah. Had a Ron Paul hat and a little a few badges around the place. And, uh... and my oh, dad wow. was like, you can't listen to these crazy people. I mean, they're just oh. Looney Tunes. And I'm like, and in hindsight, I'm like, didn't George Washington warn us against the two-party system? And his reason for it was that it was a loophole for foreign entanglements. And where are we mm. today? Yeah, that's a that was oh, his reason a... for it because he said that it was. Yeah, he was, was a clever one, wasn't he? He was a he was a. Well, a I wise think one. I mean I can't I don't know for sure. I'm certainly I certainly wasn't there, but I I think it's because he he was a Mason and he watched the French Revolution and he watched the infiltration of uh, the Illuminati in the Masonry mm. and a lot of how they infiltrated was kind of this Hegelian dialectic, uh, you know, manipulation. And uh, I think he saw that and was like, we, we can't do that. That's, that's, he, he was trying to warn of the danger. He actually used the book. It's uh, uh, John Robeson's book, Proof of the Conspiracy, mm. uh, which was published in uh, 1789 um, or 1798. Wow. But it was, yeah, and it was an admission of like, he was an insider. And George Washington used that book as evidence that the Illuminati was trying to infiltrate and to warn the American public of the dangers of the Illuminati infiltration. And, <laughs> and everybody worships George Washington to this day, but no one listens to the words he said. <laughs> say that again? Everybody worships Washington to this day, but no one listens to the words that he said. Exactly. It's so true. And Jefferson yeah. used the book, proof uh, the code of the Illuminati, to warn the public. Wow, and that book was published the same year. So yeah, that's some that's some amazing stuff. That's some. Well, I when when you were speaking then, and you were talking about if you if if people are watching the video version and they're seeing my face get all really excited while you're talking about a certain period of time, that like that, that those are my excited looks. If you can't tell, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're like oh whoa, yeah, she's <laughs> talking about 1910 and 1911. That's my you know I I've done a lot of research in all of these different areas but there's this one area that ties the two up that that that, that would would you know i really need to investigate and i'm touching on it at the moment um with an article i'm writing uh that i'm 150 years ahead of anybody else on on writing this article i reckon okay um, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. An amazing story. I think, um, and I'll, I'll say part of it because it'd be almost impossible for people to 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 you. People could go and re watch something about him. On I got a, a thing called Controller Virus, on um, uh, which I I it was my first attempt at making a documentary and saying okay give me see if I, anybody can help me make a documentary but people enjoyed it they just they just know there was no one there to kind of help me and I was doing loads of other things at that time and my life was changing but really it looked back at 1910 and 1911 and the people who were involved in the Manchuria 
avian outbreak of the plague uh, that killed about 60,000. And it was the first time that the China had done an international symposium. The guy who actually run the symposium was a guy called Dr. Wu. And Dr. Wu was um, the guy who invented the N95 mask. He was the guy who fought that up. In actual fact, nearly all virus uh, protocols um, and lockdown protocols that uh, look for the vaccines all are really here in 1910, 1911, because uh, Dr. Strong got sent by the Rockefeller Institute by America. He was studying in Manila, got sent across to be the American representatives with his uh, assistant. Um, uh, the Rockefeller Z tried to uh, set up in, uh, I, I'm not sure which what part of China I'm blanking, but they tried to set up a, a whole uh, like university system to implement the allopathic method in China. It didn't work because after the first one, they, they it became too expensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it um, didn't take off. But yeah, they and I was very curious about that because China China uses you know uh, Chinese medicine is you know very much an ancient practice and very different from allopathic. this. Well, 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 still 1910, 1911 is important for that too within China. Um, as this is happening, there's a there's a whole there's a whole bundle of things just after the symposium happens the yeah. um the last emperor of china uh, of china is installed on the throne by the japanese so it's the japanese take control of china really political control and just after and all of these people are suddenly like working under a different kind of slightly different system and they start to knock out want and and want to knock out chinese traditional methods out of society because they're getting orders from the japanese and the japanese are about to start testing on everybody they're going to use the chinese as guinea pigs and so the russians send a guy called zabalotny who's the first guy who found some sort of like a vaccine for tb by giving himself tb i think something like that or no it was typhoid sorry or something along those lines anyway but it was something he gave himself a vaccine and he didn't get ill and he claimed that he had he had he had, um, he had gave himself the disease and he, he he didn't get affected but he was at the head of the women's institute in St. Petersburg and he was a big player he wrote loads about um, what to do in uh, when there's an outbreak and, and to lock down and do all of those things well at the same time Reginald Farrar shares a name with Jeremy Farrar got sent from England and I think he's the illegitimate great-grandfather of Jeremy Farrar and that it's kind of hidden from history um and reginald farrar uh he basically examined what was going on in uh manchuria and futitian uh was a place which had a full lockdown where they sectioned it up into areas and people had to have set set passes to pass through and there was loads of like lockdown mechanisms he examined and he presented his findings to the board of london when he got back in detail and they had the questions and answers which is uh, amazing and they all went there with a load of people who were making like what was then state-of-the-art vaccination 
potential vaccinations. So they were just testing. Hafkin's prophylactic was tested on people and only a certain amount of people died. So it's okay. And it's amazing. They were going into prisons and they were saying to condemn men, we'll give you a virus and then we'll you try this out. And then uh, and if you uh, if you die, it doesn't matter anyway, you're going to die, aren't you? And so there was just like, you know, they, they were testing on them. The Japanese sent Kitasato Shibasaburo, who was one of the most evil men in history. He, at one point later, once the Japanese took over, they, they uh, cordoned off an entire Chinese village, gave them plague, and anybody who tried to leave got shot. So they all just saw, just to watch how without food and with play how people were gonna just be fighting and ripping each other apart kitasato shibasaburo used to do the most evil tests on people i mean really like pre-nazi taking skin off people stuff you know really horrible human being of the highest order but in 1911 all these people met together and looked at the whole of what had happened in this manchurian outbreak where out of the 60,000 people who died there, there was only three who got the virus and survived or got the virus, got the plague and survived. It was a pneumonic plague. Um, so it was only three who survived and they survived with really bad defects. Like they had really bad problems afterwards. Um, and it wasn't, it was described as not proper life. But that period, 1910, 1911, there's so much going on. There's this whole idea of, of a whole new world that they can create with medicine and science and all of these things that are happening all at once. And I think it, it partly comes with the creation of that explosive sort of creation, the creation of big explosions, bigger explosions, and that comes with it. But when you talk about that period, my eyes just like, I, I, it's like I'm on heroin because I want to know about that period. Um and it was a really special uh, period. You're talking about uh, as well that, you know, the founding fathers um, basically warning of the infiltration of things like the Illuminati and uh, is roundtable groups that got created during this period. Are they just the product of that warning not being heeded? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think that they're a product of the warning not being heated. I mean, I think that they're uh, a mechanism. You know, I see the roundtable groups as a way of it, it. To me, it's very much like the like the mafia. You know, it's a way of diverting the the tasks and the attention. You know, the 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 mafia boss is not going to be the hitman, but he's got a bunch of people doing his bidding for him. So. You know, if if they're going to come after anyone, they're obviously not going to come after him because they can't pin it on him. So I that's kind of how I see the roundtable groups. It's a it's a way of being able to divert and create very intricate webs. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, they do this all in secrecy. And uh, so then they're able to, you know, execute their their plans with a lot of leverage of power. Part of the secrecy is not just uh you know to withhold the information it's also a lever of power and actually adam weissoff talked about that because he he was a student of ingolstadt he was a, a jesuit a jesuit scholar and he would talk he said that he modeled the illuminati structure after the jesuits because that's why it has the hierarchical structure because he said that uh secrecy was one of the ways that he could uh entice people to feel a sense of clout and importance and also to buy in 
Um, so that's, I think that's part of the reason it's not, I think a lot of people think it's just to withhold the information so more can get done, but I think it's actually to, uh, hold a lever of power over somebody because people want to feel like they're important and they're part of the, the in-group. So you seem to, you seem to have such a vast ray of knowledge. It's just, a, a, like about history, which is just like fills in lots of the gaps of what I, I don't, you know, I don't know. And um, is that only over the past few years? Have you been reading about this stuff for a long time? Or is this just like, are you, because uh, uh, I, I think I'm a bit of a, like a sponge for certain knowledge because passion. Have sure. you got that? Is that, is that what it is? Yeah. And it really has been the past two years. I mean, as I said, I was, I was pretty normie prior to 2020. You know, I was never, I was never on the like, quote unquote left, you know, I was never like a crazy Marxist, but I was definitely you know, I bought into all the, uh, you know, I, I used to narrative. watch Stephen Colbert. I used to watch Stephen Colbert. Oh, did you? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I had a lot of friends who did. And uh, yeah, I actually, in when I was in college and right after college, I mean, I was an actress and I was uh, in the film industry. And so I had really tried very hard to become like a, I even a Democrat, just on the left, because I thought that I would have more friends, I'd be more accepted, life would just be easier. Uh, so I really tried. And I what I found was the more that I tried, the further away from that line of thought I became, because I kept asking questions. And the more absurd the narratives became to me, the, the less justification for that line of thought there was. So I actually became more entrenched in my thoughts the harder I tried not to. Um, but yeah, no, I was very, I very much towed the, what you would call establishment, you know, American Republican narrative. And I started this podcast actually with the whole, you know, if we could just vote harder, get the right people in office, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we could fix this whole mess. And uh, I started off, I remember I used to say that, I thought that the Republican Party was behaving as controlled opposition for the left. And, uh, you know, it took me not very long before I changed it to know the Republican Party was created to be controlled opposition for the left. Mm -hmm. that, you know, that was my design. And uh, I very much see that now. So I think, no, I really was. I just started diving in when I realized how much I was being lied to about everything. And because I am such a curious person, I... I want to know why and I want to know what is the truth and I don't claim to have all the answers but I'm also really interested in you know most of my early academic and just my childhood was really seeped in studying human nature you know I was very fascinated by I read Freud when I was nine I didn't independent wow. study. yeah I, I was read reading Judge Dredd man I don't even know what that is. <laughs> 2018, Judge Dredd, oh, back in Mega City One, uh, in the future. Anyway, go on. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Definitely well, comic books, not Freud. <laughs> okay, well, it sounds interesting, also. But no, I was reading Freud. I I read Greek mythology as a very like very little kid. I was always reading like biographies. Um, and then in high school, I wrote 285 page theses on dream analysis. My mentor was wow. founder of the Association for the Study of Dream. I did an independent study in philosophy. I did like whenever I had the opportunity to do independent research, I did like I studied the pre-Socratics. I, I did did a study on the trial of Socrates. My school actually published that. They published my dream work uh, as well. 
So I just had a really oh. strong interest in human nature and like why people do what they do. And when 2020 happened, I realized how much I was being lied to about everything. I just wanted to understand how did we get where we are today? Because it's really people. I mean, people want to point pin the tail on the donkey. But the reality is it's not like you can point the finger at one person. I mean, maybe there's a similar line of thought that permeates through but I don't think you can say, oh, it's all the fault of John D. Rockefeller. Like, it doesn't work that way. You know, he was definitely, I don't think he was a good guy in a lot of respects. I mean, he was definitely responsible for a lot of the, uh, you know, things that we see today that I don't look too favorably upon. But I don't pin everything on him. It's not, and he's just one example. You know, you could say Kissinger, the, the, the list goes on and on, but, you know, or the Illuminati or whoever. It doesn't work that way. What, how it works is you have ideas that get, uh, you know, weaponized and targeted through, uh, you know, mass line actions, literally. And you also have people who are, I, they're, they're sifting through. Everybody's just trying to live their life. And I think that people get, they get wrapped up in belief systems and that can create polarity and it, it advances agendas. And, but it really, it's the people that have led us to where we are today. And so that's what I wanted to study. And I wanted to understand how did that happen and what can we do to preserve the free will of humanity? Cause really that's what I see as being in stake. I, um, I, I have a, I have a fear that free will is, is a difficult one because we uh, um, seed us our will over. We, we concede all of the time to the other side. And I was trying to describe it to someone, um, recently where i was saying you know i used i ended up actually using jordan peterson as an example because yeah. they were saying why why do these people join cults join lodges join all of these different yeah. organizations um is it just you know are they all like um satanic are they all this are they all that and it's like you know there's there's human dynamics of yep. just wanting to belong and exactly. feeling out of place and when you go into a place where you find like-minded people like i mean i i my my godson come over earlier um and his dad is just like one of my best friends he loves fishing to a degree that i can't even imagine i just <laughs> when when i look watch him watching fishing shows i have no idea what's going on in his brain it just looks fantastic he's completely <laughs> excited by just watching a ship on water and a guy going like this on the on a, a, a basic enthralled and he's looking at all of the little gadgets he's just like well you know it's just what 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 in uh enforce people you don't know but when you get into a group of fishermen then if you've got like a, a load of people who are all wanting to be part of this gang or suddenly find a group of people who are like-minded akin have roughly the same background roughly the same education um they feel more comfortable around they could they also you know pat each other on the back give each other good things yeah it's all very nice but there's one there's always uh a person uh that needs to lead needs to step out in front and right. that's what drives the evil in our society to a, a an extent but it drives everything in our society is the fact that the one person usually the greediest or or the the themed the more powerful than most of the group so the reason why i use jordan b peterson as an example was 
if you when we you watched all of his um uh bible lectures and is well, a... don't watch all, that's, that's the one i didn't finish but oh, that, oh, was right. when I, that was when i started to uh shift yeah, my yeah, yeah. views on him so <laughs> yeah well, but i've well, watched some of them i have yeah, yeah. He, the 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 crowd the people he speaks to are in awe of him at the Aww. end you know is they they're, they're just in awe of him so he's like if he's like uh, up there is like this being that scares yeah. these people who are down below who come and what these people do is they submit to this person they submit to this uh this power that this person gives in a public space with a lot of people and that is how a cult is formed that's how a cult is driven on is that it just needs the one because that person at the top can believe his own rhetoric and believe his own power and believe that it makes him more powerful to know this information and what he's seeing in return is power is an increased power people submitting underneath and bowing their head and saying oh i'm i'm you know you you're so you're so knowledgeable i'm going to listen to you more i'm going to you know we we are so used to to bending over to someone who's who's is more superior in a way that we don't even notice and it's often it's a starstruck you know, especially on the independent media, I, I when RFK Jr. come along, everybody got starstruck for a bit, and yeah. now they're all complaining about how he's an anti, uh, um, he's a he's anti Gazan, I suppose he's still an anti Semite, really. Because they're Semite, so it don't it don't matter anyway. Um, I I would say anti Canaanite because they're all Canaanites around that region. You don't want to trust them. Fifty to sixty percent Canaanites, both Jewish people, and uh, it is genetically, it's amazing. Yeah um but but the, you know we always we're looking for the leader and when the leader appears that leader's ideology is what we follow and so the people the names you mentioned there the people who just step out with a good understanding of ha the ideology of power i suppose i absolutely agree with that assessment i think that that's right on target i think what happens is that it creates gnostic cults so mm essentially you know oh, it's this is what this person was speaking about she was speaking about gnostic cults oh really yeah 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 how interesting yeah that that's that's really how i see it um i think that it's it's gnostic cults and i think that this is i think this has always been true of humanity i mean that that this has always existed but i think that it has become much more codified and much more weaponized since the frankfurt school you know, the Frankfurt School, they they took the identity politics and really they they carved that, uh, you know, that strategy of using identity politics in order to create factions and groups and to strip people of individual identity in order to have people, they prey on people's desire to belong, the, the social nature of humanity in order to be part of something bigger than themselves. And so they create these groups. And, uh, you know, of course, this is, uh, I talk about the Hegelian dialectic a lot, and a lot of people, you know, have heard thesis antithesis synthesis or problem reaction solution. And, you know, the, those can explain it, but really his wording was actually, he said abstract, negative, concrete. And it was uh, really the thesis antithesis synthesis came from John Gottlieb Fitka, who he was very much influenced by. Uh, What's the original? Sorry, I, I, I tried to remember. Oh, it the and then thesis I antithesis synthesis yeah, yeah, is yeah. what uh, John Gottlieb Fichte yeah, yeah, yeah. 
codified. It was a taken after it was his interpretation of Kant's dialectic, mm -hmm. right? You know, like a, a Plato had the uh, allegory of the cave. He had the mm -hmm. uh, intelligible realm, the dividing line, the inintelligible realm, right? The the people watching everything on the shadows. Uh, the shadows on the wall in the cave. And then, of course, the inintelligible realm is out there, the world outside. And that really, I would say, was one of the first uh, really strong codifications of this dialectic. And then Kant had his, which was uh, the thesis antithesis. He, I don't know if he actually coined it that way, but that was how Ficke interpreted it. And that Hegel felt that that was too abstract and it really when he says it's too abstract I think what he meant was it was too intellectual and he wanted mm -hmm. something that could be used as a methodology uh and you know mm -hmm. he had his a uh, uh, science of what was his science of phenomenology which is where he talks a lot about this and it really he was trying to create a methodology for advancing the historicity of man and the historicity of man for him would advance towards an omega point where uh, for him, he believed that the state equal God. And uh, so, you know, all the power should be in this all consuming state, which would, you know, lord over us. And mm -hmm. so what he said, abstract, negative, concrete. The reason I bring this up a lot is because the negative is the the term in German was Afhaven, which means uh, it's an oxymoronic term that means to lift up and preserve while simultaneously tearing down and canceling. Mm. And then, of course, from the Frankfurt School, we get Afhaven to culture, which is cancel culture. And I don't mm. think I need to explain that. Most of us are familiar with cancel culture these yeah. days. Um, and so, but they really were masters of this stripping people of individual identity and creating this uh, Afhaven to culture that was tied to identity what we call identity politics now. And I think part of why they did that is because of exactly what you're talking about. I'm sorry, this is so long-winded, but it's a circle back to exactly no, what you're describing because I think as human beings, we do have a sense of wanting to belong. We And, and it's survive, for survival purposes because we are social creatures. And in, you know, Paleolithic man, if he was isolated and left to fend for himself, the chances of him surviving were very slim. You know, the that's why being ostracized feels like a physical threat. Oftentimes, you know, when we're rejected, we fe actually feel it as if it were in danger. And it's because, you know, our emotions and our consciousness or our, I, I should just say, our technological capabilities may have advanced <laughs> over the past, you know, uh, however long man has been on this earth. But our biology hasn't changed all that much. And so we are still hardwired very similar to the way that we were even thousands of years ago. And so that feeling is still, oh my gosh, I'm in danger. And so they have capitalized on this and exploited this in order to create these groups. And then what do you have with these groups? You have, they weaponize compassion because then you have this, you know, uh, mama bear that surges as the, oh, the Gnostic leader of these the Gloria words. Steinem. You're talking about Gloria Steinem and fem feminism. You're talking about Gloria Steinem, She's uh, a, a CIA construct who doesn't, who constantly changes, uh, like like morphs and transmorphs her her being. Oh, now she's a bunny who's a reporter doing an expose, and suddenly feminism dawned upon me, and now I am going to, to push out all of the uh, the voices of feminism and just just be this. Black Land version of this overarching 
Yeah, yeah, and and she makes Ms. Magazine and becomes the authority, and all of the the radical feminists are pushed out of the feminist movement very cleverly, very very um very much like it's a CIA program run by someone who was working for the CIA for ten years until she set up the magazine, and then she wasn't working for the CIA. <laughs> so yeah, the mama bear, yeah, yeah, perfect. You're describing her. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So they weaponize the compassion because what happens when you look at uh. When you look at the trait of compassion, typically, there's I always I talk about something called like the I call it the compassion traps that they create. And you look at there's the trait of compassion, and that's typically we identify that with the we associate it with women tend to be more compassionate. But what is compassion? If you look at what compassion actually is, I'm not saying men can't be compassionate. Men absolutely can. But typically, we uh, you know we associate that with women as being much more compassionate. And here's the reason. It's because what is compassion? We often think of it as being empathy, but it's actually not. It takes mm. empathy one step further because empathy is identifying with another person's suffering. Even though it's not sympathy, you may not have experienced it yourself, but you you feel for that person, for their suffering. But then compassion is the desire to want to alleviate that suffering, the desire mm. to want to, you know, remove that suffering for, for that person. And that the reason women do tend to be more compassionate is because they're compassionate to, to their offspring. It's, it's a, again, it's survival. It's to protect their offspring. But what happens when you, you present a threat to their offspring? They're not compassionate to you. They become vicious, ferocious mama bears. And that's what happens with these groups. So you now have these figures that they're these Gnostic figures, you know, they're the all knowing, they're the expert, mm. the authority who preside over this group. And now they protect their group and so everybody outside the group becomes the other they're wow. they're the enemy and so they now protect and it's much easier to get people to fight against each other in groups than it is if we all retained our individual identity and you see this through all sorts of you know yes the cia definitely did this with what what's the biggest division we could create is between men and women so of course mm -hmm. the feminist movement they're going to otherize men men are the mm -hmm. enemy so now you have this uh, hero, this leader, this, you know, essentially this Gnostic demiurge. The patriarchy. That's what it is. They And they talk, that's what they, that's, I, I mean, that's what Camille, um, oh, Palia, you don't pronounce the G. Um, Camille Palia says, you know, they, they, um, they 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 use fuzz words, fuzzy words like patriarchy that mean nothing. Oh, yeah. But it's to it's to be able to offset their own uh, shame and not achieving. Well, seems. yeah, I think I think it does a bunch of things. You know, so a lot of these words are typically um, they're signals to the initiate. So you know, it's a way of signaling like, hey, these. This means you're one of us. You're, they use these words, but it's also a way of creating the, the drawing the lines. This is our group. You're outside yeah. of the group. This is who's inside our group. Um, and then, of course, it's a way of demonizing. You know, it's uh, the evil patriarchy. But I agree with you. It's a, it is to uh, be. It, it is a way of uh, you know justifying their lack of. Uh, I don't even. I wouldn't even. Well, that's 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 see. Camille um, uh, Palia who who says you know. Who said that? And, and I, 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 I kind of there with her. Okay. Yeah. I don't even think it's so much about achievement. It's more about um, because I think that's kind of a false 
uh, premise that's been projected onto people, right? Because what is achievement? Who Who's deciding the standards for what it is to achieve? And I think a lot of that was even a feminist construct. Uh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you look at, you know, uh, you look in previous generations, women didn't mark their uh, their self-worth by how high up the corporate ladder they ranked. You know, yeah, there yeah, yeah. wasn't it wasn't determined that way. So and I think there are even still people today. I'll never forget this, actually, when I was I think I was about six years old and my father asked me uh, what success meant. And, uh, you know, it, it really struck me, I, obviously, because I still remember this conversation. And I said to him, well, I said, I think it's very personal. I, I don't think there is like a metric for success because uh, what success, what might be successful for me might be different for you. It depends on your value, you know, what you what your values are, what you hold dear. So, you know, some some woman might determine her measure of success by the family that she's raised and, uh, you know, the uh, the type of children that, you know, they, they grew up to become or, you know, how her children grew up or uh you know, I or the the farm that she's built, or who knows? I I'm you know we we could go on and on with the, all the hypotheticals, uh, but I think it's just, you know, and some other woman might say, oh, I'm successful because I make you know seven figures and I run this corporation, and it's not for me to judge what one person's success versus the other, but I do think that we've you know there are a lot of narratives constructed around what it means to be successful. And, you know, when, in the case of feminism, I think a lot of it, we were sold a lot of lies. You know, mm -hmm. women were sold this lie that you have to, uh, at least, it, you know, what I saw in the United States from, you know, growing up was just like, you have to go to college, you have to get this, you know, degree, then you have to get this job and, you know, you have to make this money. Kind of looks like the standard model. Kind of looks right? like and, and in reality, was, was that going to make somebody happy necessarily? Mm -hmm. And, then you're stripping them of these prime fertile years, right? And I mean that literally. I, I do think that was by design. And that's not to say that you can't build families later. I'm not, the, this whole new manosphere, red pill, like what whatever wave of red pill we're on now. Some people argue with me. They tell me it's not really the red pill movement. Maybe it's not. But what I'm seeing, I, I don't subscribe to that. I think it is so toxic. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, this idea we we all need to be trad wives in order to restore humanity. I it, It's like, okay, well, who instituted the, the version of trad wife that you are saying we should all model? And mm -hmm. why are we demonizing healthy, you know, flourishing relationships and families? Like, that's not productive to the flourishing of humanity, right? Like, yeah, they, they're yeah, not yeah. the enemy. The people who are in healthy, successful relationships and who are breeding, you know, healthy, successful children, those aren't really our enemy. So why are we? <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I see that that's not what I'm saying. But I do think that it's just that we've been sold so many lies. And a lot of it was designed really just to stunt the progress of humanity i mean progress in the literal sense of the word you know the actual procreation of humanity so yeah 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 completely i i i feel that there's um there's also a, a, a automatic extreme that people go to once they realize oh well you know 
the whole world in the future looks like it's going to break down. It's going to be dystopia. I'm going to move out to the middle of nowhere and hide away. Um, mm -hmm. That's some, you know, that's one of the many extremes that that it doesn't make sense when you actually play through strategy of what happens if society breaks down and you need a social group very close by to survive ensemble. Because when things properly break down, you don't want to be in the middle of nowhere with no protection. <laughs> you know, it, it's the worst place oh. to be. You've got all the food of you. Oh, Oh, you're self-sustainable for how long <laughs> they're going to take everything but in the same way that's the idea is that we 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 you know we have to we have to fight within our societies so that we can live out in the middle of nowhere if you want to live out in the middle of nowhere you've still got to kind of like be part of society in some way so uh, maybe that's um I think, you know, when you say trad wife and you go in that and people are going that route and people are going the same with traditional life and trying to get off the grid and stuff, uh, there's obviously there's obviously going to be, um, however much society gets pushed, it's obviously going to be some sort of output the other way. So there's, and it always gets more extreme. So I've, I was thinking when you were saying that about a, a woman who I saw on a TikTok, I think it was on a, on Twitter or something. And, uh, and she was there with a baby wrapped round and she's giving this whole trad wife speech about how it's the greatest thing ever. And she's the greatest thing. And my husband does all of this and this cause I like it. I love it. And it's like, you know, I, I, it is true. It's, you know, there's there's lots to be said about stereotypical sort of relationships sure. man being strong and mm -hmm. women women being less than strong but fruity <laughs> where okay. men are, uh, are hairy <laughs> you know it's 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 the differences that make make all of the unique bits but we i mean this is all about this is all about homogenization isn't it i mean what yes. we're seeing now so okay, right to to start winding it up. Okay. What do you see our future looking like then? What do you see like? Um, I'm not going to say like oh, 2030, we're all living in mega cities and we are nothing and we're happy and all this. That, that's <laughs> just that's ridiculous. Like that's not going to happen by 2030, obviously. But um, where where do you see us in like 2050, 2060? You've got a good understanding of of history where are we by then so i you know i think what they're they're scaring people uh, I, I i hate to put label but we'll call them like the truther movement or you know the quote-unquote dissident people a lot of them are being very uh i think they're being targeted with this fear narrative that we're all going to be chipped and we'll be cyborgs and you know i i i don't want to discredit any of that because there's certainly a initiative. I mean, we can just look at, I, I try to point people towards the AI world society that they're building. This is UN 100, the centennial of, because the UN was created in 19. The Royal Society is so fucking evil. <laughs> it's so, so evil. evil. So evil, I, I full think... of the most evil people in rooms going, meh, 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 doing evil things. Terrible. I'm with you. I, and I really think they're <laughs> trying to create a cyber Satan. That's at least what it looks like to me. Um, so they, you know, so they're talking about the, and the, you can go on their website. It's all very public. Uh, you know, it's an AI world, AI world society, hence the name. And they're doing it in partnership with Boston Global Forum. Uh, and, uh, 
you know, they said Michael Dukakis, who was former uh, governor of Massachusetts, and they have a book, it's called The Remaking the World, The Age of Global Enlightenment. If that doesn't sound new agey enough for you, just take a read of it. It is a, uh, it's new age merging with AI and uh, technocracy. And uh, they're using Ukraine as the hub is what they're talking about. They have a symposium on rebuilding Ukraine after the war and they're decimated and we have to rebuild Ukraine to create this AI world society, which is going to be connected to all these smart city grids. And it's very, very dystopian. So I don't want to undermine any of that. However, I think there are a lot of people who are not going to sign up for the Neuralink and the chipping of the brains and, you know, or even chipping under the hands. I know some people already have and there's already... But here's the reality. And of course, whatever they can do to create, you know, a cyborg kind of transhuman world leading to posthuman. And I mean that literally there's a handbook. It's called the handbook of the posthuman world. So, you know, they, this is a, a real thing that they are trying to foist upon humanity or posthumanity, I should say, rather. Um, but I think the bigger concern is that is something we're already facing because they're creating, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with cybernetics, but this is a, a term and a philosophy that has been around for a very long time, way uh, preceding, the, you know, our smartphone technology. And it's this idea of this brain uh, technology interface. And, you know, yes, a lot of the technology that they're working on and that they're trying to uh, foist upon us is very dystopian and very, you know, it's transhuman, like robot-like. And that's a possibility. However, there's also just how much uh, psychological manipulation is occurring through uh, targeting through our social media interfaces. And the best way that I can explain this is I remember growing up where, you know, we had magazines and we had film and TV and uh, it, this is going to sound silly and superficial, but I think most people can relate to this. Uh, certainly the women, probably even more than the men, but I think men will relate to this as well, uh, where we had these very kind of uh, photoshopped images being thrown in our faces, right? It was, you opened up the magazines and there are these supermodels. And yes, we can argue that even outside of them, they were probably beautiful people, but they're, they're completely airbrushed. And, you know, it's just not, it's not even what they look like in their day-to-day -day life. Mm. However, it was just magazines or an isolated incident when you went to the movie theater or turned on your television screen. And when you stepped out into the world, and even if, you, uh, particularly for someone like me who lived in New York City and L.A., I would see these people. And the reality is they're most of them are like everybody else. You know, they have their days with their hair in the bun and no makeup. And, you know, with, they don't look like the images that are presented to us. So we have reality to check against the images that are being presented to us. Mm -hmm. And that was very, I, I think, essential to the well-being of humanity because, mm -hmm. And again, I'm, I'm bringing up a very superficial example, but I think it's one we can relate to because we had we had checks and balance against the false reality that was being presented to us. What is happening with us spending more and more time on our screens and, you know, our social media platform is that we are we're, the lines between reality and virtual reality, reality in the physical domain and the virtual domain is becoming increasingly more blurred. And so 
So we're becoming more susceptible and vulnerable to you know, really psychological warfare that's being targeted through that. And we don't have as much of a buffer because if you, I think most of us have experienced either a dream or, you know, like a deja vu type experience. Oh my gosh, was that real? Was that not real? Did I live that? And what's now I think starting to happen is, wait, was that real? Or was that like, you know, something that happened on Twitter, <laughs> like, mm. you know, just for an example. Um, but people are literally arguing with bots and they don't necessarily know they're arguing with mm. bots. Some people do. Some people still have that discernment. But what happens when now SAG has redone their, um, you know, their their agreement, they, they had the strike and people were cheering about it. But I don't think it's a great deal. Basically, what it is, is your name, uh, like license and likeness right um and so they're incentivizing people and i think a lot of people are going to sign up for this they're incentivizing people to give up their likeness in wow. order to because they get paid on it and they get paid on the residuals so now ai it's machine learning a lot of people talk about the singularity is near or we're already in a simulation i don't really think we are but i think they're trying to push us into a singularity and the more, I don't think that there really is sentience. I think there's no evidence to point towards the sentience of, you know, AI. Mm -hmm. However, the machine learning is advancing and it's being, the input is being increasingly exponentially fed. And I yeah. think what we're going to see, you have now, like, I, I posted a video of like a singer who was a completely AI generated. Now, if you watch mm -hmm. her, you can kind of tell it's not quite real. But what happens when... We're so used to reading what ChatGPT wrote, or we're used to seeing things that were created by AI images, and we start to have trouble discerning what is real, what's not real. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, I think we're going, we're increasingly in danger of entering a metaverse that's not quite the what, you know, it's not necessarily a world of totally robots. While that concern is there, obviously, you know, they're already saying how I mean, we already go to you know, Amazon one is like eradicating, you know, any checkout counters and you just go in. I, I, I walked into a gas station that had this. They had all these cameras that watch you and then they see you pick stuff up. You go up to the register. It's already calculated what you purchased. Right. So, I mean, a lot of this technology and infrastructure is already here. And now with what they're doing with biometric data and collecting it, I mean, we see the the 2050 uh, EMT, they're using all this bio, uh, biometric data uh, in the name of healthcare. So all of that is there, but I'm really concerned about now we have autonomous drones that are being that uh, US military, the Pentagon has said that autonomous drones can decide whether or not to kill humans. Um, so I, I'm not painting a gray picture here, but this is kind. Of, these are the kind of things I am pretty concerned about uh, mm -hmm. moving forward. And and again, this will really uh, further strip away our freedoms, our you know potential for being put into some sort of us you know like China's digital you know social credit system. Uh, I think that'll be further accelerated by a lot of these blurs of reality and it does take away from, you know, what does it mean to be human? So I, uh, not to be all doom and gloom, I still think that we have a lot of potential to derail their plans. In fact, I do believe that we have derailed a lot of their plans. 
Uh, I think we've at least slowed them down or made them have to pivot. <laughs> and uh, so I, what I just encourage people to do is you talked about like people going off the grid. I, the way I kind of look at it is I think the, the cities, people are being pushed into the city to create the, you know, the digital uh, prisons. And I think that the people who go off grid are going to be a lot of these, the serfs, um, the slaves, because they're going to have to, you know, work the land. And I think it's going to be a way of kind of enslaving them if we even have anything real left, because of course they're, you know, all the geoengineering and now they're creating fake food. They're at an alarming rate of what mm -hmm. is being converted into fake food. Um, so, you know, there, there's debate on that. Will you even be able to farm? Um, so I, but the reason I brought that up is because I do advocate, at least in the short term, whatever self-sufficiency people can mm -hmm. have, mm -hmm. uh, whatever personal sovereignty you can retain. I don't think people should isolate themselves. If they go off the grid, I love the idea of building homesteads. Yeah, you have yeah, like-minded yeah. communities, you know, you have, uh, you know, communication systems established that are off of the electronic or, uh, you know, cyber things like satellite kind of communications and, uh, you know, really where you can have reliance networks that are built within. So I think that I think people taking their children out of, you know, indoctrination camps and homeschooling them, teaching them practical tools too, you know, as a, I'm obviously a lover of information. <laughs> and so, you know, I think, sure, teach them information, history, uh, obviously the foundational math skills and if they're they're gifted push them in that arena challenge them there but really practical skills you know things that are that we are that we laugh at today like home ec uh you know men learning how to build things um you know give them the foundational tools so that even if they're not going on to get advanced degrees in uh, applied mathematics they know basic math they know without punching it into a calculator you know, mm -hmm. they know basic geometry so that they have visual spatial skills when they go out into the world. You know, people think geometry is just a list of proofs and, you know, uh, you know, algor uh, um, yeah, algorithms and uh, equations, but it's not. It's it's really viewing the world and being able to adjudicate, like, will something fit here? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. can I... Uh, can I move this couch into this corner? That that's a lot of geometry, and it, it's it really can be hands-on practical uh, tools for them uh, navigating the world because we don't know, you know, we just don't know what the future will be. And if people are locked into a digital prison and something malfunctions, there you're going to want people who can mm -hmm. do real hands-on things. So I I still advocate for that. Whatever people can do to buy physical books, I advocate that. Uh, so they can't just manipulate, uh, you know, the, the Constitution is online, our, our United States Constitution, and you go look and they they, they tweak things, they, they edit it. Uh, the Bible is online and, of course, they tweak it. And, uh, you know, regardless of one's worldview, I recommend everybody have their children read the Bible because, you know, our founding, uh, the United States founding fathers were not all Christian, contrary to what a lot of people think. Um, and most of them had no formal education, but they had all read the Bible. And if you look at the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist papers, that was considered fourth grade reading level at the mm -hmm. time. Now I send like a paragraph of that to people I consider very intelligent and erudite today. And they, they, they're they like, 
this is over their heads and because they don't have the foundational tools. You know, we're not taught the tri trivium anymore, which is just the grammar of mm -hmm. logic and rhetoric, which I think if yeah, people yeah. were just doing that, they would be so much better off and we would be in a much better uh, position to fight against a lot of this uh, globalization, uh, centralized uh, world governing body that they're trying to push us into. And the uh, really, I think the world religion they're trying to push us into, I think is an AI religion. That, that's what it looks mm. like. I, it looks like a cyber Satan to me. Um, anyway, that was a lot. I don't know if it answered anything, but those are no, kind of no, it did. It, I, I mean, um, wow, though, yeah, I think there needs to be, um, definite what well, I agree completely with what you say about like if you build something in the middle of nowhere if you want to get off grid you get off grid together it's never yes. really off grid you create your own grid and that and grid has got to be a really strong as well it's got to be something where everybody's basically under pressure you'll know where you'll act that's when it's important you know the rest of the time you can get on with the stuff but when it's under pressure because like you say uh, the, the the tests of creating these um mega city cyber gulag sort of infrastructure it's going to be um both trial and error so there's going to be yeah there's going to be moments where the something collapses in a way i mean i know i know around i, I live in the city and i know that um some of the people around here would turn rough pretty quick if they didn't have enough food really rough pretty quick um there would be there would be death <laughs> there would be death for anywhere yeah. um and that does branch out so you need to build a community i, I again i i well, for me i live in an area where i know everybody around here but mm -hmm. i also know that they are not ready for what could happen and could be around yes. the corner they are so far from being prepared in um or even anyway. aware that there's a possibility they need to be prepared. That's yeah, what I and what you're talking about the with the Bible is just like uh, classical allegories and fables have been taken exactly. out of our society for a reason. Just keep us and and the, I, I say to people that, that I remember that specifically when I must have been about uh, probably five, maybe younger. That we were told by a teacher that they had changed the clerk. A oh, curriculum. Ooh, took a couple of times to say <laughs> it. it. I deal with words, but yeah, they, they changed the curriculum and uh, they were going to be taking out um, Roman and Greek uh, stuff out of it completely. Uh, we were going to learn about kings and queens of England instead. And we'd learn about the elites and the monarchy and all of their shiny goods and how cool it was when they took people to battle and how funny some of them were when they went mad and they killed a load of people. Ho, 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 ho. So, yeah. And what we're, we're when you say taking kids out of school, I mean, the school systems, that takes a lot like that. That takes you have to really be brave. But I, I think there's a load of people I know who are just like on normie land, but ready to step across that. Uh, breach within just it'll be one thing that'll happen in society and they'll be like oh no way i'm not having that i, I mean the the one thing that is the most uh as uh, one of the most stable things is that what you were saying earlier in a sense is uh what a woman scorned <laughs> yeah. hey, hey. you don't want to piss them off because they will just say no <laughs> and that means no so so <laughs> no. and 
Yeah, um, th- that was a, a brilliant conversation. I r- really like talking with you. Um, I do too. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's okay. I, I, I think that is like you. You got so many. Uh, you know so much in areas that I am completely clueless about. Uh, I got I, okay. I, I got I got like a bit of knowledge here and a bit of knowledge there from what I pick up along the way. But sure. I kind of like center and focus in on on research and certain things. So I love how broad your interest is. Um, there was there was one thing you said about dreams. You said a lot about dreams. You said loads about dreams. And I suppose do you get people instantly when you talk about your work you're like studying dreams and stuff like that? Did you get people saying, Can you tell me about this dream? Oh my gosh, my whole life. Yeah. yeah. And what's so interesting about that is that people don't realize how personal they are. Oh, I know, I know, I know. So I had one like, the other oh. day and I want to tell, I want to say, because I've been thinking about it for a week and a half, but, but it's, it's, I, I think I'll leave it out just in case everybody, you know, everybody works out that I'm going to die. <laughs> no, I mean, we can, or and, and we could also yeah. do it offline too. It's a, totally up to you. But I always warn people because people often approach me in like a, a group setting and they're like, oh, I had this dream. Can you tell me what it means? And you know, I, and that's not actually how I work. I I believe in empowering the dreamer. I want to, uh, that's why I loved Gail Delaney's method. It was the interview method. Really funny side story about this though. Um, when I did my research, uh, the, the my senior year, because I did two years, I did the junior year and then I did my senior year. My cousin was living with us at the time and uh, he, you know, he was watching the research that I was doing and he told me, he said, you know, this this dream stuff is, that's great that you're doing that. But I, I think that you're you're going to grow up to be like, you know, a Diane Sawyer or a female Larry King. And I was so offended. I remember <laughs> like, I was like, why? I'm going to be a neuropsychiatrist. Like, I'm going to get a Nobel Prize because that's when I first presented my research as a junior. Um, I presented it to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York City, and they laughed at me. I mean, I was 15 years old, and they said, it's a human brain study. You would need an MD-PhD to conduct a study. However, it would most likely, if you were to conduct it, it would most likely uh, garner you a Nobel Prize, because I think that the findings would be statistically significant. And I said, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, all starry eyes. Oh, okay, I'll do that. And uh, and they said, but you probably shouldn't bother because by the time you get your degrees, you know, we'll have already conducted the study. It's a fascinating, you know, research. Oh, and uh, so I realized in hindsight, it was total gatekeeping. And it was really kind of ludicrous because, you know, I wasn't going to slice the brains, you know, that and the, it would be the surgeons who would do that, the neurosurgeons. And you don't need to know how to code to run a software company, right? So I was just, it was my, it was my research that I'd be outlining and I would oversee, you know, and conduct the study, but I wasn't going to be involved in every uh, facet of executing it, like, you know, doing the brain study itself. So I, it was actually kind of ludicrous to me in hindsight, but at the time I was like, oh, well, that's what I'm going to do and I'll get into a Nobel Prize. And it was very naive and very starry eyed of me. Um, but I, so I was actually kind of offended when he told me that. And I said, why, why would you say that? And he said, because, uh, you know, the stream stuff is, you know, it's interesting and you're doing great stuff, but really I think your talent lies in the interview. Mm. And it's, I hadn't thought about it for mm. years until I started the podcast. And yes. I was like, sneaky oh. deaky. It happens like <laughs> I was that. Like, That's really interesting. And a definitive, I, I, I'll say the, 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 
my sister told me when I was young that when I was older, I'd have a beard and I got really angry with her. <laughs> oh, really angry. For the people listening to the podcast, it's a lie. It's all a lie. <laughs> it's a right. lie. Yeah. So that Courtney was, uh, Turner, you're, you're, yeah, quite in incredible. So w where can people find you? And, you know, where's the best place? Because you're obviously on like, like Podbean and stuff like that, aren't you? Yeah, I'm on everywhere. The best place to probably find me is at CourtneyTurner.com. Again, that's like Courtney, so it's C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And that has links to all of my different platforms. I'm on, I think, 20 different audio, I think five or six different video platforms. I also have a website called uh, Rebels, plural, for cause, for spelled out, F-O-R, cause.com. And that's a, it's a festival we do. It's creative artists uniting for the sovereignty of everyone. And it's really just to give a platform and a voice to independent creative artists. Mm. Uh, because, uh, you know, CIA art is really good. I really enjoy it. But I think that the independent uh, voices need to be heard as well. So, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> no, it's true. Part of the reason they're so effective is because it's good. So I really want, unfortunately, though, a lot of the good people who are independent either get co-opted and brought mm -hmm. to the quote unquote dark side, if you will, or they just get silenced and, you know, they really don't get a chance for their voice to be heard. And by voice, I don't just mean, you know, musicians, it's musicians, comedians, it's a, it's a, I do aerial, it's a, you know, the filmmakers, actors, and uh, studio artists, but, you know, they use art so much for culture creation and social engineering of the masses. So it's, uh, I may not agree with all the voices that are presented, but I think it's really important that they have a chance to uh, be displayed. And so we do that. That's Rebels for Cause. We had 53 acts in our last one, and it was 26 hours of content. So you can watch all of that through the website. And uh, yeah, those are probably the best places to find me. And I'm all, all the social media, like the Twitter and the Instagram, but you can find that through my website too. Some noble stuff there too. All right. Thank you for coming on the News Pace podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me.